This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. If God truly loves you like a father would a child, a son, or a daughter, he's not going to just sit by and do nothing while you ruin your life. Because in those seasons of your life, when you think God has abandoned you, the reality most often is he's trying to save you. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Today with Jeff Vines. In this episode, Pastor Jeff continues examining Judges chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, an in-depth look at the struggles and faith of Gideon. The episode explores the concept of resolutions drawn from Gideon's story and how embracing these can lead to a peace that passes all understanding. Here's Pastor Jeff to begin another message in his Unpossible series. Okay, I'm in Judges chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. We're in the story of Gideon. We're in this series called Unpossible. And I hope that by now you've realized it's a very difficult series. We're asking some very serious questions about how we relate to God and how we relate to the unforeseen, unfortunate events that come into our everyday lives. Well, as I was preparing this week, I thought, you know, I went back to a guy named Bobby McFerrin who wrote a song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And I used to love to sing that song, but as an adult now, I mean, this was when I was younger, I started taking a closer look at the, at the words. And in the song, which is quite famous, actually still gets millions of hits on Spotify. But basically he says, don't worry, be happy, because in everybody's life comes a little trouble. And if you worry, you make it double. So he says, don't worry, be happy. But then he goes into this, he says, Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy. The landlord says your rent is late. He may have to litigate, but don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style, ain't got no gal to make me smile, but don't worry, he says, be happy. And in the end, he goes, it will soon pass, whatever it is, don't worry, be happy. And then he says, I'm not worried, I'm happy. Now, if you look at the entire song, Here's what comes to your mind. You're happy? You might be delusional. (laughs) You got no gal, you got, somebody stole your bed, I guess they broke into your house. You can't pay your rent. Your life is in shambles and yet you're saying, be happy. And sometimes that's exactly the way those on the outside looking in at the Christian faith think that we view life, that we've got our head buried in the sand and everything's falling apart around us, but we just say, don't worry, be happy. What they don't realize is that we know something very special. And because we know it, we respond to the difficulties of our lives totally different than anybody in the world. And we've been saying in this series that in the same way that Stephen Covey came up with seven resolutions by which to live in the business world that would lead to ultimate success as Christ followers, we've developed seven resolutions that come right out of the story of Gideon. We're not really developing them. We're just kind of extracting them from a text that already exists. We're saying that if we live by these resolutions, then we too, no matter what comes our way, we'll have a peace that passes all understanding, we'll be rock solid. In fact, we've used the quote out of the book that says, what if we realize that we don't have to be controlled by external forces and could in fact reshape unfortunate events into significant spiritual wins? 
So in order to do that, you and I need more than a song. We need meaning. We need to know that these events come into our lives and our response matters. And what we've said all along is, what if God allows these events into our lives in order that there would be a cosmic victory based on our response, a cosmic victory of good over evil, and that you and I actually play a part in that, that we are partners together, workers together with God. So here's what we've said. We said when things come into our lives, based on the story of Gideon, we're making resolution number one, that we will see the unfortunate events of our lives as faith builders, leading to the greatest accomplishments of my life. So from now on, when some unfortunate event comes into my life, I'm going to say, wait a minute, because I know the story of Gideon, I know that God will take advantage of every opportunity to build my faith and trust in him so that when he asks me to do the big thing, I will believe him, I will trust him, and I will be more than successful. I'll be more than a conqueror. So he said, we're going to look at every unfortunate event with different eyes. This is a chance for God to pull the rug out from under us and then to show that he is faithful and true to rescue us, that we might have our faith built, that we might live an extraordinary life. Second, resolution two, we've said, we're also going to affirm that there will be times that God will require us to do something that seems unreasonable, which makes perfect sense because we don't have the reason and the wisdom and the knowledge that God has. So because God wants us to be victorious when the odds are heavily stacked against us, that means that we're gonna get a word from God, instruction that in our minds might seem unreasonable or even illogical, but because God is privy to all the information around us, our enemy, what they're gonna do, what they're planning, those who are trying to bring us down, what they're doing, what they're planning, because he has all that knowledge, he knows what we need to do to gain the victory. So now we come to resolution number three, and it goes like this. I will live with the resolution that God will always lead me to do that which brings him the most glory. This is the toughest one of the bunch. I will live with the resolution that God is always going to lead me to do that which brings him the most glory. Let me go back to the text in Judges chapter seven, verse one, early in the morning again, Jerubbabel, or Jerubel, that is Gideon and all the men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. We, we went through this last week. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. And then he says, if, I, if, I, if, if they are delivered, if they have a victory and they have too many men, which we know, I don't know how God could come up with that number. We don't in our own understanding because they're already It's already 135,000 against 32,000 from the the get-go. But God says, if I don't sift them, if they have too many men, they will boast against me and they will say that our own strength has saved us. So here's what God's saying, so important. Gideon, if Israel goes into this battle against the Midianites with four to one odds and wins, even though it's four to one odds, you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna say, man, look what we did. They're gonna go walk around high-fiving each other and they're gonna be saying, man, we were outmanned, outnumbered, out-resourced, but look what we did. Look at us go. We won the battle anyway. We're a bunch of farmers. They're a bunch of warriors, but look how strong and courageous we are and we were and we did it. And God said, if I allow that to happen, the next time they face the enemy, 
They're gonna rely on their own wisdom, strength, and resource, and they're gonna be defeated. So in order that glory might flow in the right direction, I'm gonna have to sift their army. So he gives them the fear test, 22,000 go home, 10,000 remain. The fervency test, 9,700 go home, 300 remain. 300 against 135,000. And if that's the number for all you mathematicians, the odds are exactly 450 to one. And when the odds are 450 to one, the only way you can be victorious is God. Now, this is the most difficult resolution of all, and this is the most difficult principle by which to live. And that's why I'm gonna ask you this weekend that you, I'm gonna ask you to engage your brain. This is hard work because I have to hit this from five different angles because we all hear messages through a filter, our personality, our education, whatever it is, however it is we view God. So I've got to hit it five different ways in order that wherever you are, the light's going to come on, okay? So here's, first of all, here's the truth about us. Most of us feel glory starved. When I say glory, I'm defining that as the Bible word would be defined as adoration, honor, distinction, renown, praise. When I was a little boy, my mother used to tell me that I would sit on her lap and I would look her in the eye and I would constantly pull her chin and say, look at me, mom, look what I did. Look at me, look at me. She goes, you would do that. It would drive me crazy. Anytime you did something halfway decent, you'd come over and grab my chin. Mommy, look at me. Look what I did. Look what I did. The Bible says you and I have a lot in common with the illustration I just gave you. We feel that we need to be seen. We feel that we are entitled to much more glory than we're already receiving. In fact, most of us, our depression and anxiety is directly tied to the fact that we don't think we're getting enough glory, enough honor, um, enough adoration. So we feel glory starved. In fact, most of the decisions, think about this, most of the decisions that we make in our lives about our career, about our relationships, about life in general, most of them ask this question, what decision should I make in this arena of my life that would give me more glory? More adoration, more notoriety, more distinction, more renown. And then when something threatens our glory, we dig in and fight for it. We want adoration and honor and distinction and renown and praise. The problem is that while we're doing that, we fail to recognize that God is not gonna share his glory with anybody. God, and there's a reason why. I had a university student when I was uh, doing ministry in Savannah, Georgia, come to my office one day and say, look, Pastor Jeff, I gotta tell you, God is a glory addict. God, God, he seems to not be able to get enough glory. I mean, why is God so glory conscious? Why does it matter that his name is revered? Let me put it to you like this. Uh, let's say my son Delaney, let's say he was 12 years old. He was 12 years old at one point, but he's 12 years old. Let's say that I learned he has a quite serious disease. And the doctor has told me, look, your son, if he doesn't get this treatment, is not going to live. Now, as a father, you know, if you hear that from, from about one of your children, you would rather God take your life if it's meant to spare the life of your, of your child. Now, let's say I have the cure for my son. I have the remedy. You might say that I become jealous for him. I want him to come to me and listen to me 
and honor my words and trust in me and give me the glory and distinction and renown because in doing so, I want to attempt to draw him away from all the imposters and counterfeits that are offering him something that they can never deliver. I have the way to life, but others are going to try to distract him and convince him that this is the way to life. Now, in that way, I become jealous for Delaney. And in the same way, God is jealous for you. You're constantly bombarded with promises that can never deliver. And yet you demand your freedom to pursue them. Now, if God truly loves you, he's not gonna sit on his hands while you glorify, while you hold in high regard, while you treat as excellent and splendid something that can never satisfy. This is the thing. If God truly loves you like a father would a child, a son or a daughter, he's not gonna just sit by and do nothing while you ruin your life. And in this way, God is a jealous God. So what does God do? Stay with me now. This is an important question. Because in those seasons of your life, when you think God has abandoned you, the reality most often is he's trying to save you. I just finished a documentary called The Last Dance. It's the, uh, the story really of Michael Jordan and the famous three-peat bulls of 91, 92, 93. But in this Last Dance uh, documentary. Michael Jordan is interviewed. But if you pay close attention, Scottie Pippen is also given a lot of time in the documentary. I remember reading an article. It's called No Babe in the Woods. That's the title of the article. It talks about how Scottie Pippen was born in a small, very small house crammed with a lot of people, a very poor family. But he had the talent of playing basketball so that by 1999, he got a big contract. He was going to make which was a big deal back in those days, 14.7 million a year all the way through 2002, which means he's going to make almost $45 million in three years. With endorsements, he's going to make close to 50 million. He had a 70-foot yacht, 74-foot yacht. He had a $100,000 Mercedes. But what I found interesting is in the article in Sports Illustrated, somebody interviewed him and said, tell us your thoughts during, you know, before a game starts, what are your thoughts? And here's what he said, and I quote, he says, before every game in Portland's Rose Garden, I have eyes for only one. And then it goes on, second, third person. He'll let his gaze drift over to the courtside seat occupied by Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft and owner of both the Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks. A man with a, person net, a personal net worth of $40 billion. Pippen looks at his employers, employers' geeky exterior and he wonders, how does he do it? Tell me how I can make a billion. I just want one of them. Tell me how I can make a billion dollars. Tell me how I can become a billionaire. Now, if you're like me, you're stopping and thinking, dude, you make 95 million. Is that not enough? Is 95 million not enough? And it says in the article that he lives with a kind of chronic discontent. I also remember telling you the story about the baseball player. It was arbitration day and his wife was interviewed. At that time, he was making 26 million. He was asking for 52 million. Sorry, he was asking for 68 million. So he's making 26. He's asking for 68. They settled in arbitration for 52 million. And when his, life, his wife was interviewed after the day of arbitration, this is what she said. She said, this is the saddest day of our lives. You think about that. It's the saddest day of your lives that you didn't get 68 million, you only got 52? If your ultimate glory and worth is placed upon 
anything temporal, you will suffer chronic discontent because your soul knows that for which you are ultimately living. If money and fame are the answers to life's most penetrating questions, there's, there'd be a lot less suicides and drug overdoses in Hollywood and on Wall Street. And we've said before, you cannot fill an eternal void with temporary means. I read another article. Why are there so many grumpy old, old, old people in America now? Why are there so many grumpy old people? And the idea was that used to, the older you got, the more wisdom you gained of what's really important and you gained the sense of internal satisfaction. You were content in the things that truly mattered and you realized the things that you had chased all your life could never deliver. So in your old age, you're peaceful, you're kind. But now, according to this article, we're living in a country where the old people are grumpy. And the article says it's different now. A new generation of grandparents got so sucked into materialism and liberty that they've missed the most important events of their children's lives. They are estranged from their families and that's why they're grumpy. Having given, having given their greatest efforts and energies to all the things they thought would deliver the shalom life, they come to the end, worn out, exhausted and frustrated, awaken to the reality that they've wasted their lives. Now, please stay with me. We're, we're shifting between that second and third angle. Why do you think God made us? Why did God decide, I'm gonna, I'm gonna create people, not just a beautiful universe landscape. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make people. It can't be because God was lonely and he was looking for companionship because again, as we've stated, even the name of God is plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there's perfect unity and community in this relationship within the Trinity. So that means if God didn't create us because he was lonely, why did he? And the Bible seems to suggest, in fact, in no uncertain terms, that God created us because God is love. He does not merely love as an action. He is love by nature, which means it's what he does and who he is. So God did not create us because he needed to love, but because he wanted to love, because that's who he is. Now, the question is, what kind of love? And we've talked about the four different words for love. You've got eros, which is an erotic love in a relationship, husband and wife. You've got phileo, which is a friendship love. You've got agapao or agape that most of us know an unconditional love. But do you know the number one word of love associated with God the Father, other than agape, is the idea of storge, that it, God wants us to understand that our relationship with him through our entire lives, in order that we can understand the one number one metaphor is father and child. The father wants and desires. Now we're talking about a human father. I'm a father and I desire to be glorified, honored and held in high regard by my son. Why? Because when he's younger, I know that if my son will trust me, that he will come to me for the answers to the deepest needs of his life. And I will be able to give him the wisdom that I've learned over the course of my life that will lead to true inner peace and joy. And I know if he holds me in high regard and glorifies me as his earthly father, that I will then be able to give him knowledge and wisdom that will lead to life and vitality. Now, if God truly loves you, he will not let you glorify things that will never deliver without a fight. We've got to get this through our heads. He loves us. He's jealous for us. 
So what does God do during the course of our lives? He sifts the things that you glory in or give ultimate glory to until he's the only thing left. Do you see what I'm saying here? That's really what happens in your life when you become a Christ follower. You say, well, those people's lives who aren't Christ followers, their lives seem to be going well. Hey, we're not talking about them. We're talking about you. You've been bought with a price. You are part of an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. God possesses you and owns you. But there is no better master because he always has your best interest in mind. And what God does through the course of your life, when you think he's abandoned you, he's taking those things away that you think you can't live without. So you get to the end of yourself and glory primarily and only and ultimately in him. Because when you do, the shalom life, the inner peace, the inner joy comes your way. You know, just recently, my wife and I were talking, and I don't know why I do this, but I, sometimes we men are a little bit in need of some words of affirmation. So I was talking to my wife, Rob, and I said, you know, I was thinking the other day why I married you. And she goes, why did you marry me? I said, well, honey, number one, remember, I'm a guy. I am unbelievably physically attracted to you, and it's still true today. It's just the way it is. You're beautiful. Your eyes are beautiful. When you go away like you did for a month just not too long ago and you come back, I realize how beautiful and gorgeous you really are and how lucky I am. And she shakes her head. Then I say to her, why'd you marry me? Now, when I said that, I was hoping to get, because you're unbelievably handsome. Because I just can't see you enough. But instead, there's this long pause. And I'm waiting. Okay, I'm waiting. What is it? And she has to think. And finally... In a slow, methodical way, she says, well, to tell you the truth, I married you because God brought us together. That's all I got. Now, that shows you her spiritual depth over my shallow feelings and emotions. But what she's basically saying is, I'm with you because I knew God made you for me and me for you. Can I tell you something that I've been trying to say for a very long time? When I married Robin, I glorified and gloried in her. See, in my mind at that time, she was my savior. Now, not from my sins, but I felt that when I got married, I'd have no more problems in my life. I'd, I'd never be lonely again. I'd have a relationship. I'd have someone in my corner. I would have someone to go through life with to, to grow old together. So in my mind, I'm thinking, man, now five years into the marriage, you start to realize marriage is tough. And the things, your expectations you place on your spouse no man or woman could ever live up to. It's impossible. And then it dawns on you that marriage is going to take effort for the rest of your life. And it's going to take give and take and grace and mercy. And I don't know at what age I realized that what I was asking of my wife, only God could deliver. But let me tell you what happened. When I came to that realization and I stopped placing those kind of pseudo savior thoughts onto Robin, and instead turn to God and say, God, I know that you're the only one that can give me what I'm looking for. You know what happened? I started loving my wife even more. Why? You cannot be right with anything on the earth until you are ultimately right with God. When you glorify most in him, and that's when he's most glorified is when you're most satisfied in your relationship with him, then you relate to everything as you should. You don't try to get something out of it that it was never meant to deliver. So because God is jealous for you, he keeps trying to get you to turn your attention ultimately to him and then you'll relate to everything else in a healthy spiritual way. So I'm telling you that until you're right with God, God is gonna frustrate your lesser loves. 
I'm trying to suggest to you that God loves you so much that he's willing to do something drastic to force you to open your eyes to the reality that Jesus is all you truly need. And as we've said before, you're only gonna see that when Jesus is all you have left. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Helene, interesting word. This is the Hebrew word that is spoken by some pretty significant people in the Bible when they're asked to glorify God through their suffering. Helene is a reply given when there's a total surrender in the mind of the one who speaks it. It means, here I am, I am fully attentive, God. Samuel said, Helene, here I am, Lord. I'm listening. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.